Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chow. I have some uh, faces I don't recognize, so I think I should introduce myself. I'm from the U.S., uh, Chinese-American, uh, born, born in China, grew up in the U.S. So um, I don't regularly attend this congregation, so I had to go back and listen to what was preached, right? I had to go listen to some of the messages. So I went through a couple of uh, two and Alex's messages that they preached in the past few weeks. Uh, they've been preaching through Nehemiah, right? And so um, whether you've been here or you haven't been here, um, some, of the ser some of the sermons talked about uh, Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild its walls despite heavy opposition. A lot of people were against the wall building. Uh, there was also Ezra reading law and trying to lead people uh, back into renewing their covenant with God. So today I thought I'd do something a little bit, um, a little bit different, but I hope it's helpful, which is I want to provide a historical background for the uh, Judean uh, Israel exile. And so I think that by understanding uh, the history a little bit, uh, we, can, we can gain a, a more nuanced understanding of the importance of Judah's return to Jerusalem. So uh, can we go to the next slide? I don't have the clicker. Okay, so um, uh, the Hebrew Bible talks about a united kingdom um, sometime uh, before the 10th century BC. So this is a long time ago, right? 12,000 years ago, uh, there was a united kingdom, uh, this, this uh, Israel. Uh, but by around 850 and 900 BCE, uh, there came into existence two separate kingdoms known as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So the uh, northern kingdom uh, had a pretty early demise. Uh, around 720 BCE, the Neo-Assyrian Empire to the northeast uh, destroyed it and uh, started taking its people cap uh, captive and taking it back to the Neo-Assyrian territory. Uh, can we go next slide, thanks. <clears throat> so, Thousands and thousands of Israelites from the northern kingdom were forcibly relocated to the new Assyrian Empire, uh, beginning in around 722 BCE, uh, as a part of the new Assyrian uh, uh, resettlement policy. So what this policy was, was it was a way to control the territory that they owned, right? So one way of doing this was to move people, not shift people around, right? Shift people from their newly conquered territory back to the kind of closer to the heart of the empire. And this was just a way to control uh, territory. Now, this, this strategy, resettlement policy, is very common in the ancient world. Um, just really quickly, I looked at uh, some of, like, in ancient China, um, there was resettlement policy too. For example, in the Qing state between 8th and 3rd century, there were a lot of resettlement policies around the, uh, surrounding the neighboring territories. Next slide. Though Israel was destroyed um, and its population relocated, the southern kingdom of Judah remained intact, and it became a client state of the vast Neo-Assyrian uh, Empire. Right. But the Neo-Assyrian Empire had an interesting problem of its own. If you, I know you can't see it on the map there, but on the eastern side of that big blue area, which is the Neo-Assyrian Empire, there's a city called Babylon. Now, Babylon was, uh, made a lot of trouble for the empire. 
And so uh, in 612 BCE, the Babylonians, along with a lot of the, its allies, the Medes, the Scythians, and uh, various other allies, they, they conquered the capital city of Nineveh. And Nineveh is located just a bit northwest of Babylon, kind of in the heart of Assyrian territory. Right, so, so Babylon and its allies took over Nineveh, and it's the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the king, uh, died during battle. So what happens then? Well, uh, once a vassal city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire now becomes the ruler of the entire region, and thus begins the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The Neo-Babylonian Empire became increasingly powerful, and through various, uh, through numerous uh, military conquests, um, many states that were formerly owned by Assyria as well as Egypt were taken under control and became Neo-Babylonian uh, client states. And this includes much of the Levant region. So the Levant region is um, what we today consider Israel part of, um, I believe, part of Syria. Just, just, just I'll point out on the map. So they, so they owned a lot of the territory, a lot of the nations, and a lot of the, uh, the states in this region. Now Judah was quite interesting because now Judah was stuck between uh, two very powerful empires. Uh, to the northeast was the Neo-Babylonian Empire, right, which they belonged to as a client state. And to the southwest was Egypt. Egypt was also very, very powerful. Like, you know, this, this, is, this, this is a tiny state in uh, the Levant region that is being stuck between two giant powers. It's like, um, it would be like, um, it would be like, kind of like uh, Cuba, like stuck between the US and maybe Mexico, something, something like that. You know, just a tiny, tiny place that really wasn't that powerful. And these two empires that, would frequently attack each other to try to gain land and control over the Levant region. So internally, Judah's leaders were uh, really uh, constantly in debate. Who should we side with? Who can save us from our predicament? Um, they, they knew they were client states of Neo-Babylonian Neo Empire, but they also wished that um, that if they could um, support Egypt's military, they could somehow gain independence. This, so this was, this was an internal conflict that we can actually see when we re read through the Old Testament. It's, it's quite popular in there. Now an opportunity presented itself when Nebuchadnezzar II, the second king of the, uh, the Neo-Babylon Empire, he campaigned against Egypt in 601 BCE. So he took out a lot of forces, right? And he tried to fight Egypt and try to take some, uh, take some territory. But Nebuchadnezzar II failed in this uh, campaign. It was a miserable campaign, and he lost against Egypt. Judah, seeing this defeat, right, of their, of their, um, of their, of their, of the state that they were client to the Neo-Babylonians, they took this opportunity to vote against their, um, their patron state under the leadership of Jehoiakim, and then later a second revolt under Zedekiah, um, Judah tried to, uh, tried to gain independence. And at the same time, they were constantly uh, seeking for Egypt to support that, right? 
Now, the problem is that it was an epic failure, epic failure. Um, the first revolt began the, uh, Jude Judah, the Judean Babylonian War. And this war um, lasted for, for a couple, for a decade and a half roughly. And they were completely destroyed because of that. Um, by the second revolt, the second revolt under Zedekiah, uh, the uh, Babylonians basically came to, came to Jerusalem and just destroyed the entire city, ransacked the temple, uh, ransacked the city and destroyed the temple. It was a complete and utter defeat. The Judahites were taken into captivity following each of these failed revolts and uh, following a lot of subsequent uh, waves. There were a lot of subsequent waves of forced immigration to the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Israel and Judah are completely uh, destroyed. It's a, it's a complete disaster. They, they had lost almost everything, uh, many lives, uh, land, the temple, which was the center of the religious life, right? They must, you can understand, they must have had a lot of questions as this was going on. Where was Yahweh when our Israelite brothers and sisters were being taken captive? Where is Yahweh now that we have lost the war and being taken captive ourselves? What about the covenant that Yahweh promised to our forefathers. Are we still his people? Is he still our God? This, these questions must have been with the ethos of his people for, for, for generations. They, they wondered this. Now, disasters are not unique to the ancient world. Um, disasters have long challenged people of faith because people struggle to understand why God would allow such things to happen. This is uh, conveniently or neatly packaged as uh, known as the problem of evil. And it has turned many believers into atheists. One really famous, well-known uh, New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, he was uh, once a fundamentalist Christian and because of the problem of evil became an atheist or agnostic atheist, I think. And this is a problem that David Hume calls the rock of atheism. We were earlier singing about the rock, right? Our rock, Jesus is our rock, but they call the problem of evil the rock of atheism. This is how big of a problem it is. And Christian philosophers and theologians have, have tackled this problem in, in, a, in a very particular field called theodicy, trying to answer, trying to, trying to wrestle the issue of evil and, and the existence of a good God. I wonder if you have experienced personal disaster before. I'm sure we all have. I, I really, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that. We have experienced personal disaster. Do we currently, are we currently facing a personal disaster? Now speaking of disaster, um, a terrible one that, um, that I have been recently uh, learning about and reading about um, is a, an investment scam called a uh, pig butchering scam. <coughs> the Chinese Sha Zhu Pan. Sha Zhu Pan. It originated out of China um, many, many years ago. Um, and in its current form, uh, basically has Chinese scammers uh, who are located in various compounds in East Asian countries. And they're part of crime syndicates. So it's not like a loan project. It's, it, it's 
it's criminal activity, criminal people. Uh, and these scams usually start as an unsolicited message. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I receive like two to five text messages a day like, oh, hi, uh, this is Chris, I haven't seen you in a long time. Or like, or like, uh, or like oh, uh, how's your day going, right? These <laughs> unsolicited messages <laughs> that happen through WeChat, WhatsApp, and text, and also through websites like LinkedIn and Facebook, they are part of this scam. They will use stolen photos of uh, young, attractive members of the opposite gender, um, and, and, uh, and they will go around targeting individuals. And in particular, they're targeting Chinese diaspora. So these scammers, what they'll do is, after they kind of start talking to you, right, they'll try to gain your trust, and then they'll love bomb you. So by love bombing, it means they'll ask you like, hey, good morning, oh, have you eaten, oh, how are you doing, oh, good evening. Every single day, every single day they'll talk to you. And by doing this, they'll try to, they'll try to get you to emotionally attach to them. And, and, they'll, and they'll try to make you fall in love with them. Because, hey, they're beautiful, right? They're you know, handsome, beautiful young people, and they're caring, right? And so once the target has fallen in love, they will introduce this idea of crypto investments. These scammers will use a combination of fake websites and phone apps to legitimize their investments. And they'll lure in the target to transfer money into these fake platforms. And then through various techniques like gaslighting and fear of missing out and love bombing, they will, they will, get, these, they will get the target, the victim, to plot all of their investments, their retirement savings, including even borrowing money from friends and family including taking out really high interest loans from shady loan, loan places. All this to get them to invest in it. And in the very end, when you try to take out your money, they will say you have to pay a tax. And the tax cannot come out from your, your earnings in the account. It has to come out from your own money. Of course, the idea is that withdrawal from these applications is impossible. It is impossible. And after every single penny has been drained from the victim, the scammer cuts all contact and disappears. You can imagine, victims of these scams, Shadrupan, are left completely devastated. They are financially wrecked. Many of them are retired people who lose their retirement savings, who lose their homes, are forced to downsize, are forced to return back to work, these people are emotionally ruined, betrayed by someone that they thought loved them. They are socially destroyed because through this process, often friends and family will try to warn these people. But, but sometimes warnings aren't heard and, 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 and contacts are cut off. And, even, and, and it gets so bad, some victims even commit suicide out of humiliation and shame. These scams not only destroy individual victims, but tear families and sometimes communities apart. And these are a prevalent thing. They're not uncommon. In 2021, the US alone, the FBI, reported 24,000 victims with a total loss of 1 billion US dollars. And this number is very, it's a tiny, I, I, I believe, it's a tiny proportion of the true number of, uh, of victims in this kind of scam. This is just the US alone. So we're talking probably um, you know, billions and billions of dollars each year lost to this kind of stuff. 
complete and utter disaster, right? We can, we can almost imagine, we can taste it. Maybe if you're really unfortunate, you know someone who has experienced this. How might you respond to such a victim? How might such a victim recover from such a total disaster? Well, for the Israelites, they were exiled to Neo-Babylonian Empire, right? Recovery would be a much awaited thing, but it will come much later. It will come almost half a century later when the Persian Empire, a, much, a, a, a very strong empire at the time, defeated the Neo-Babylonians and took over all of their land. Whereas previous empires, the Neo-Syrians and the Neo-Babylonians, right, they relocated people out of conquered territories, the Persians were a little bit different. One of the first acts of uh, the new Persian king Cyrus was to allow exiles to return back to their land and to reestablish their religious institutions. This is why Cyrus is kind of known as a liberator. And this edict of 539 BCE is what allows for the entire Ezra Nehemiah story. The story of Judah returning back to their land and the rebuilding of a wall and of the temple. Now, this means that, so you're going to just take my word on this, but I did some rough paper math, right, napkin math. It means that roughly between Judah's exile and return, there were approximately 60 years. Since life expectancy was around 25 to 28 years uh, in those times, uh, rough napkin math would mean that, that they were exiled for three to four generations or more. It would take another century so another five to seven generations before uh, Cyrus's uh, descendant, Artaxerxes, allowed Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. What this means is that those returning to Jerusalem had lived for many generations in another place they called home, a home away from home. In fact, many Judahites, when offered the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, they didn't go. They, they enjoyed the, um, the, 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 the economic uh, prosperity they had developed, the freedoms that they had under the uh, Persian Empire. There's one interesting family called the uh, Murashu, the Murashu family, and they were a Judahite exile to, uh, uh, to now the Persian Empire, and they began the first banking house in human history. So, you know, you got some really wealthy uh, Judahites back then. But those who agreed to return back to uh, Jerusalem were going to a place that their ancestors had spoke about, that their ancestors called home. Now, the challenges of the return from exile made uh, identity a key question in this period. Earlier I asked, right, like, the, ex the ex exilic Judahites were wondering, what is our relationship with God? Who are we now, right? These are questions of identity. When they went back to Jerusalem, they had to ask, what does it mean to be um, people of God um, during a recovery time? Now that we are, we can go back and slowly build up our, um, our, our lives again there. And furthermore, what did they need to rebuild in order to become God's people? 
Um, an interesting, an interesting, interesting thing is that even while the uh, Judahites and Israelites were uh, in, uh, living in a foreign land, um, we have archaeological records that uh, they maintained national and religious identity uh, through observing the Sabbath, building synagogues, uh, practicing circumcision, and uh, substituting ritual sacrifice uh, with prayers. In the, in, uh, with prayers. Now today's, so we finally get to today's chapters, right? Today's chapters are from uh, Nehemiah uh, 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12. Um, I'm gonna ask you to open it in a, little, in a little bit, but let me just briefly summarize, right? These chapters focus on what it means to be the people of God during recovery from disaster and what they needed to do in order to become God's people again. In these two chapters, there are two major events that contribute to the rebuilding of their identity. The first, and now you can open uh, Nehemiah chapter 11 if you would like to kind of see what's going on here, right? Um, so, it's a long list of, or long lists of genealogies. A lot of so you know I don't <laughs> you know I usually get tired when I read genealogies. And hope I'm not the only one. <laughs> um, this this first list is quite long. It goes from chapter 11, verse 3, all the way to chapter 12, 26. Take a quick look. <laughs> um, you will notice that uh, names are split into different categories, such as provincial leaders. Uh, descendants of Judah and Benjamin, uh, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, right? The list itself is, in, is an interesting thing because its existence is actually a response to a question that was asked much earlier in the book, in chapter 7. Could go next slide, thanks. In chapter 7, there's this question, right? So now the city was spread out and large, and there were not a lot of people in it. At that time, houses had not been rebuilt. My God placed it on my heart to gather the leaders, the officials, and the ordinary people so they could be enrolled on the basis of genealogy. I found the geneal geneal genealogical records of those who had formerly returned. Here is what I found written in that record. And then, boom, we have this genealogies in chapter 11 through 12. It's interesting to note that besides leaders, uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11 tell us that uh, they took, uh, they cast lots. So basically like, you know, picking a, picking a stick and seeing who was longer. Uh, so that one out of every ten ordinary citizen was able to live in Jerusalem with leaders. In addition to the people that returned, chapter 11 also lists some of the places where Jews were living before they returned to Jerusalem, and, the li and that list includes places deep in Persian territory, which suggests that movement within this empire was fairly unrestricted, and that tithes could be collected from far away to support the temple in Jerusalem and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Genealogies. They are very boring <laughs> because um, they don't make much sense to us, right? I don't know about you guys, but um, who here has um, genealogy for, their, for your own family? Okay, I see a couple people. Oh, that's great. I mean, when you, when you read it, right, you're like, yeah, I, 
it, it feels different, right? It feels like, oh, I'm related. You know, my DNA, I got that connection. And it's like, oh, this is meaningful. Um, but, but genealogy is for, you know, for Judahites and Israelites living uh, 15, what is it, 2,500 years earlier. It doesn't really make much sense to us, right? But let me tell you why genealog genealogies are important from a, from a kind of a, a kind of a, a, a rational or a kind of a scholarly perspective. One of the uses of the genealogy is to authenticate an individual's covenantal relationship with Yahweh. It's like if you don't have this genealogy, right, you can't prove that you have a relationship with Yahweh. You can't prove that you're a true uh, Israelite. Uh, you, you, you know, you're illegitimate. But, but with the genealogy, you can say, oh, I can trace my ancestors back to the true faith, and I am part of that. So it's religious inherently. Now imagine those who had returned from the Babylonian Empire, right? The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That means that, that, means that the physical connection between the, the, the Israelites and their God was, was destroyed. Their physical connection was destroyed, was severed. But by proclaiming and keeping records of their genealogy, they were declaring that Yahweh's covenant with Israel was not broken, was, not, was in fact not broken. In, a, in this sense, the genealogy is an unseen evidence of the covenant, while the temple is the visible evidence of that covenant. And so that's why it's so important for genealogies to be, uh, to be passed down, to be written, to be kept as evidence. It was, it was a proclamation for a returning people that Yahweh was still their God and that their covenantal relationship was intact despite over a century of exile. So earlier the question was, you know, that in exile they would ask, what is our relationship with Yahweh? Do we still have a covenantal relationship with him? By, 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 by proclaiming the genealogies and keeping it as a written document, it, it, it basically declares that, yes, we still are your people. We still belong to you despite our experience of multi-generational disaster. Despite living abroad, not, not being able to return home, despite being taken away by force from our home. The second event in these chapters is the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. It starts in chapter 12, verse 24, and it goes to 47. Please uh, feel free to turn to it and uh, take a brief look if you would like. Now, common sense tells us that walls were an important part of uh, defense of a city. Uh, here, these walls not only defended the city, but more importantly, defended the temple. And again, you'll see that in these verses, there are lists of people. Again, it's a long list. You've got Levites, musicians, choir people, uh, men responsible for storerooms and tithes. So just a long list, right? Now, I, I, I decided not to go into details of the list, right, because for, for I think, for uh, good reasons. Um, but I will talk about the significance of these lists. 
There's a, there's a professor of biblical literature at Hebrew uh, Union College, which is located in Los Angeles, California. Her name is Tamara uh, Eskenazi. And uh, so Tamara Eskenazi, in 1988, uh, she wrote about um, Neha Ezra Nehemiah. And uh, she detected three themes that were very significant in these, book, in these books. I will only talk about one of them. The, the significant shift is, is observed when you think about earlier writings in the Hebrew Bible. Earlier writings focused on charismatic individuals, right? So you have like people like Abraham, Moses, right? Joshua, Samuel, David, Daniel, right? These, these very, very, um, uh, these we, we, when we read the Hebrew Bible, we're like, oh, okay, these are stories about these individual people, right? These people keep showing up. I think even non-Christians have heard of people like Abraham and, and David, right? These are very popular people. Um, but what we see in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is a shift from individuals to the community. From individuals to the community. We see all these names, and these names build up that community. And we not only talk about those names, but we talk about their, their wives and their children. And so chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12 really highlight this shift towards the community by listing out the individual names in the community. It is, in a sense, it is saying that it is this community that establishes, accomplishes the task of rebuilding the temple as well as the wall. It is this people who turn to God in corporate allegiance at the end. It is this people who rejoice and give thanks to God during the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. In verse 43, it actually says, it is, On that day, they, the people, offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Even women and children were mentioned in this community. In closing, what do these chapters talk about? What does the book of, book of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about? It deals with the themes of recovery after great disaster. Complete and utter disaster. Today's chapters 11 and 12 highlight the need for people, communities, to be united in the process of recovery. They speak of hope amidst disaster too. Recovery from disaster is possible when people remain united and help each other to rediscover a new life. And for, from these chapters, see that for the exiled Judeans to return to Jerusalem, they promoted unity through genealogies and ceremonies, right? And today, disasters like Shajupan, the um, pig butchering scam, they can tear families apart. They can tear communities apart. But it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't have to be that way. Victims of disasters like this, victims and, and, and people who experience disasters, we can turn to each other for help and, we can, and support in times of need. Speaking very personally, um, some of you know that, some of you will know that um, I'm struggling a lot with my PhD uh, project. Um, in ways, it feels like I am watching a disaster slowly un unfold. 
It's, it's terrible, let me tell you. <laughs> Yet in this process, I must say that family, friends, fellow classmates, and supervisors, I won't say their names here, um, have been incredibly supportive, incredibly supportive. I'm so thankful for the support I get. And so when I read the acknowledgement sections of academic writings, I, I really feel that that's, you know, that's probably one of the only one of the few places where the where the author's being really, really, you know, like speaking from the heart. I feel like they're speaking from the heart, not just the brain, but from the heart. And it and 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 it and it, and it reminds me that I'm not alone in this process of uh, watching a disaster unfold. <laughs> but, um, you know, we earlier I said that we 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 likely will all experience some disaster in our lives. And I would just say that today's verses remind us that we all need support and unity in difficult times and that we can offer our support to others around us in their most difficult times. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your presence and we thank you for keeping a story about your people who have gone through so much uh, suffering and total disaster during the exilic period. We're thankful that in your faithfulness, you allowed your people to come together in unity as a community to experience the process of recovery. Lord, likewise, in our lives, we pray that you would help us in our experiences of disaster. Help us to turn towards you in our deepest, troubling, most troubling times. And help us to be a comforter for those who we see are in a deep, a deep cloak of darkness. Help us, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.